The title of the message is, Looking to Jesus to Solve Your Problem. Or maybe better said, and maybe the way we print it in your program, have you looked to Jesus to solve your problem? Now, let me ask at the beginning tonight, I'm not going to ask what your problem is. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. But how many of you tonight would say, on this Wednesday night here at First Baptist, I have some kind of a problem in my life, my family, my finances, my health, my work. Somewhere I've got a problem. Would you just raise your hand? All right, now that's most, not all of us, that's most everybody just raised their hand. And so let me ask you this question tonight. With that problem, have you looked to Jesus for the solution to that problem. You know, many times in life we have a problem, and instead of looking to Jesus and leaning on Jesus and waiting on Jesus and depending on Jesus and letting Jesus do with our problem what needs to be done, many times, all of us have been guilty of this, I certainly have, we run out ahead of God and we say, God, I got a problem, and so what I need to do is to fix this problem. Well, the longer we live and the more problems we have, the better we understand that sometimes we have a problem that we cannot fix, a situation in our life that we can't make right. And sometimes they're just problems that we cannot solve. And that was certainly what happened to the children of Israel as they're in the wilderness. And when this story that we're about to read happened, they had a problem that they couldn't solve. So the first thing I want to say tonight, the first point is simply this. We live in a world of sin, sickness, suffering, and sorrow. Now, I want to say that again, let you write those words down. You know that to be true, but it nonetheless needs to be said. We live in a world of sin, of sickness, of suffering, and sorrow. Now, on the sin part, all of us are guilty. The Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, we all know that's true. At least I hope you believe that's true. The Bible declares that it's true. We all have a sin problem. But we live in a world where there's not only sin. We live in a world where there are the ramifications and the consequences and the results of sin. We live in a world of sickness. I don't know when the last time you went to the medical center downtown and just drove up and down Fannin or Holcomb or Old Spanish Trail or Main Street or one of those roads down there and just looked at all the hospitals and looked at all the parking garages going into those hospitals. And what does that say to us? It says we live in a world of sickness, and it was never intended to be this way. Not only that, we live in a world of suffering, and there's much, much suffering in the world today. There's mental suffering, emotional suffering, physical suffering. There's all kind of suffering. And maybe tonight, and most probably tonight, even in this service, there's some here battling sickness, you're suffering, and certainly sorrow and sadness as a result of all these things that are going on uh, in, in the world in which we live. Now, Numbers chapter 21, look with me beginning in verse 4. Because the children of Israel here are experiencing, I'm telling you, sin sickness, suffering, and sorrow. Verse 4, then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Literally, where it says discouraged, it literally means impatient. There they are in the wilderness. And maybe one of the reasons it's good that we have let this Wednesday night series drag on so long about the wilderness, it gives us a small feeling of what they felt 
for those many years, those decades in the wilderness. And as they're just going around in circles year after year, decade after decade, I mean, it just got old and tired. And they, why did they become discouraged? Because they were impatient. They were ready for something different. They needed something to change, and nothing was changing. And sometimes we experience that. So in verse 5, they did what you would expect them to do. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, that's a bad thing there. To speak against God is, is the worst sin. And then they're speaking against Moses, who was just doing what God had told him to do. And here's what they said. Why have you brought us out, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes, literally detests, our soul detests this worthless bread. And so they began to complain. I'd say they began to complain. They continued to complain. They've been complaining all along. And that was the problem that God had with them was that instead of trusting him, they were complaining. But they're out there and they're going through this. And in verse 6, it says, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. And so as a result of all their complaining, all this impatience, all this blaming God and blaming Moses, God said, that's it, I've had enough. And he sends these poisonous snakes. And these snakes begin to bite these people, these Israelites in the wilderness. And one after the other, they begin to die. And so what are they experiencing in the wilderness? Sin. They're complaining against God. Sickness. Now they've been infected. They got a poisonous snake bite. Many of them are dying. And they're suffering. And they're experiencing great sorrow that you can imagine in the wilderness if you're out there and there your wife is bitten by a snake and there she dies. Or there your son or daughter is bitten by a snake and there they die. Or your parent or your sibling or your friend or the person you're sitting next to tonight. You're in the wilderness and they start complaining. God says, that's it. God sends a snake bite. And uh, they die, and there you are watching them die. And so now you are extremely sorrowful and extremely sad. I'm saying this. In many ways, we live in a similar situation to what the children of Israel lived in. We live in a situation where as a result of sin that has entered the world, we're experiencing sickness and suffering and sorrow, and it is a heartbreaking and a sad situation. Now, in the midst of all the bad, here's the second thing I want to say tonight. In the midst of all the bad, we have to remember, we must remember, it is imperative that we remember that God is good. In the midst of the bad, you know, it's so easy in life, and I, I fear that this is happening now. I know it is in our world. We're focusing on all the bad. Turn the news on tonight when you get home. And, uh, well, maybe don't turn the news on tonight when you get home because it might discourage you. But if you turn it on, you're going to just see so much bad and so much negative and so many people pointing fingers at the other side. And it's not this, it's good for us to be informed. But it's not good for us to be depressed by people who are reporting the news and putting a spin on it from their political persuasion. When I turn the news on, I just want somebody to tell me what happened today and let me figure out why it happened if I can. But watching all this, it is intended. Listen, these news programs are, are not, it's not bad. It's good to report the news. But when it becomes anger-driven and 
Oh, it's, it's not healthy, it's not edifying, and it's not what we should fill our minds with. And if we do fill our minds with that, our, our focus is going to be on the bad, the badness of the situation, instead of being on the goodness of God. And so I think it would be much more edifying for us tonight when we go home. I mean, yeah, I'm going to turn my TV on and see what happened today and have some dinner. And, and I do that most nights. But at some point in the evening, I'm going to turn it off and take my Bible and read a little bit. I've already had my Bible reading for today, but read a little something before I go to bed tonight. I would rather go to bed with my mind on the Word of God than on my mind on the badness of what's happening in the world today. Now, that's just me. But it's much more edifying. If I would have been sitting home today in front of a television listening to all that, I would have come out here tonight flat, down, depressed, discouraged. Everybody's saying, what's wrong with John? Well, I don't want to emerge up here to preach from that setting. I'd rather come from having been with God today. And so in the midst of all the bad, remember that God is good. I want to show you several verses that talk about the goodness of God. Old Testament, maybe my favorite verse in all the Bible. It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Look what it says. The Lord is good. Say that with me. The Lord is good. Say it by yourselves a little gusto. Now notice the rest of it. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. It's a tremendous verse. Now in John chapter 10, I read this verse this morning in my own Bible reading. Jesus said this. I am the, what's the next word? Good shepherd. Now, what does the good shepherd do? He protects the sheep. And so the good shepherd is never going to let anything come into the lives of the sheep that would not be good for them eventually. He's not going to do it. And not only that, a good shepherd is never going to deprive the sheep of something that would be good for them. And so the shepherd is here. The sheep are in the sheep pen. The shepherd is guarding the sheep pen. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the door. Not only is he the shepherd, the good shepherd, he's the door. He's protecting the sheep. And so Jesus says, nothing is coming into the lives of these sheep unless it first passes through me. And if it passes through me, I intend it to be good for the sheep. But not only that, I'm not going to let anything be deprived from the sheep. I'm not going to let the sheep Go without something that could be good for them because I am the good shepherd. Look at this verse in Psalm 84. It says the same thing a different way. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. Now look at this next part. No good thing. Say those three words with me. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Some of you tonight may be praying for God to meet a need. Do something in your life. You're asking God to give you something. And you're thinking, well, why hasn't God given it to, you, to me yet? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you why he hasn't given it to you yet. Either it's not his will or it's not his time. And if it's not his will, you don't want it. And if it's not his time, you're not ready for it. And so the scripture says no good thing. That brings, I, I read that today. That brings me great comfort in my heart to know that God is not up there in heaven withholding things from me that would be good for me. No, just the opposite. God says, John, I will never withhold anything from you that would be good. I'm the good shepherd. Anything that's good for you, I'm going to give you. Anything that's painful that I allow into your life, it can be used for your good in the end. But no good thing will he withhold to those who walk uprightly. Now look at this verse in Romans 8. It, it uses the death of Jesus on the cross to illustrate the same point. 
He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. What is it saying there? It's saying God gave us Jesus. He sent his son to this earth to die an agonizing death on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And so the nearest and dearest thing to the heart of God is Jesus. And God gave us Jesus. And so Paul is saying, he who did not spare his own son, he didn't hold back Jesus, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, Paul's logic is this. If he didn't hold back Jesus, he's not going to hold back anything else. He is the good shepherd. And so I'm saying for me anyway, and it's true for all of us, but I can certainly say for me, in the midst of all the bad, if we'll choose to focus on the goodness of God, we're going to be a lot better. Talking about good, God being good, I'll show you something else that's good for us to do. Psalm 73, the psalmist said, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. It's good for us. James tells us the same thing a different way. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And so it's a good thing for us to do. And then one other verse, Psalm 92 in verse 1, the psalmist says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And so as we think about all the bad in the world, here these people out in the wilderness and they're complaining and they don't like their circumstances and they're hungry and they're thirsty. They're ready for something different. It's the problem of, of the human race. From the, they want something. Everybody wants something new. Well, I think most of us have lived long enough to know that when you get something new in just a matter of time, it won't be new anymore. It'll be old. But they wanted something new, and they weren't happy with their lot in life. You know, David said in Psalm 16, the lots have fallen for me, the lines have fallen for me uh, in, in good places, and I'm happy with the life God's given me. Well, these people out here just the opposite. They didn't like anything God was giving them, and they're focusing on the badness of their situation. Their mind is totally off of the goodness of God. Now, let's go to the next truth. It builds right on that. I'm saying, and all those verses demonstrate, God is good. He's not withholding good things from us. He's doing only what would be best for us. He's a good God. Now think about this. Since God is good, he has designed a way for us to deal with the bad. And so, yes, sometimes the shepherd allows things into the sheep pen that we think are bad for us. But the shepherd says, remember, I'm the good shepherd. I'm not going to let anything into your life that's going to be bad for you. Only things that can ultimately be good for you if you'll respond appropriately. Since God is good, he has designed a way for us to deal with the bad. Now, a moment ago, I asked you how many of you have a problem. And most everybody raised their hand. Uh, Okay, so the question is, how are we supposed to deal with these problems? I'm saying that God has devised a way for us to deal with the problem. How do we deal with the problem? I want to mention four things tonight. First of all, and you can think about your problem and apply these four things to your, directly to your problem, and God will address the problem. Number one, through the confession of sin. Through the confession of sin. Look in verse 7. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. And so all these snakes are in the desert biting the people. People are dying. And the people knew that it was a result of their own sinning against God. And so they confessed their sin. Now, I want to be very clear on something. 
It would be foolish, unwise, and scripturally wrong to assume that every time a person has a problem, it is because they have sinned. I got home from an event last night and had not read all of my, I hadn't, hadn't read my main Bible reading yet for the day, and so I turned, and don't you turn there, let me just read this to you. I was scheduled last night to read John chapter 9, and I did. And here's how the chapter started. As Jesus passed, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Here's a man been blind all of his life. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they, just, they concluded, since he was blind, somebody sinned. Because why? They, they assumed that all suffering, all problems are the result of sin. And Jesus straightened them out on that. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus said this man's blindness has nothing to do with anybody's sin. God allowed him to be born blind so that on this day, God God the Father could demonstrate his power through me. And you read that whole chapter, and you read that Jesus healed this man of his blindness. And at the end of the chapter... They're asking this man, who was it who healed you? And he said, I don't know. But one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And it's an interesting chapter. As you read about this man's faith, the progression of his faith, when these religious leaders said, who healed you? Who was it? And he said, a man named Jesus. He looked at Jesus as a man. And then they continue to interrogating, and he has more encounters, and he says, you know, this, this man, I believe he was a, he's a prophet. I, I'm, I'm going to upgrade him from a man to a prophet. And then by the end of the story, Jesus is explaining to him exactly who he is. And and this man says, he's the Lord. And so at the beginning, after he first got healed, Jesus is a man. Then he's a prophet. Then he's the Lord. You see the development of his faith. But the point I'm making here is that Jesus said his blindness had nothing to do with anybody's sin. And so we need to be very careful, whether it's in our own lives or somebody else's life, if they, if they have a problem. That was the mistake Job's friends made, right? I mean, Job had all these problems. And his friends went to him and said, Job, I'm paraphrasing, but here's what they said. They said, Job, there's some sin in your life. There's some secret sin that you're committing or have committed. And as a result of that, God is punishing you. And here, that's why you have all these problems. And they were as wrong as they could be. It had nothing to do with that at all. Now, you say, well, John, if it's got nothing to do with sin, why are you telling us to confess our sins? Because sometimes it might have something to do with our sin. And whether it does or not, when we're going through a problem, I just have always thought it was a wise time to do some self-examination and to pray with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me to the way everlasting. You know, last Sunday morning, we had the Lord's Supper, one of the best Lord's Supper services that that we've had, in my opinion, that I've ever been a part of last week. What does the Lord's Supper do? It gives us an occasion. We should do it daily anyway, But it gives us an occasion to examine ourselves and to ask God, is there any sin in my life that I've not dealt with? It's one of the things that makes the Lord's Supper so special. But did you know what? A problem should do the same thing. A problem should make us become introspective and say, God, I'm not saying I got this problem because of sin, because more than likely I didn't. 
But I do want to use this occasion uh, as, a, as a time for me to examine my heart and confess my sin. Folks, listen, there's never a bad time to confess your sins to God. And when you're going through a problem, you've already got a problem anyway, so why not just begin by examining your heart and confessing your sins? Remember this, Psalm 68, 18, the psalmist said, if I have sin in my heart, iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me when I pray. God does not hear the prayers of a lawless person. And so if we're breaking the law and breaking the law of God and not even tender and trying to confess that before God, uh, he's not even going to hear our prayers, uh, not like he would have if our hearts were pure. Now, that leads to the next thing that we should do. The first thing, we confess our sins. The next thing that we should do is to pray. Uh, how has God, what has God devised for us to do? He's, he's devised our problem to be rectified, to be solved through prayer. Look at the second half of verse 7. The first half, they said, we have sinned. But then they said, pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from the people. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, it's interesting to me, why didn't the people just pray themselves? Why didn't the people just go to God and say, God, forgive us? They, they confessed their sins to Moses. Well, they should have. They had sinned against Moses. But they should have just confessed directly to God and asked God to help them. But they didn't even feel close enough to God to go directly to God. They had to go through Moses, and uh, it only demonstrates that they really didn't know God in a personal way themselves. But nonetheless, prayer was made. They asked Moses to pray. Moses did pray. And so when you have a problem, after you've confessed your sins, the wisest thing that you can do is to pray about your problem. Now, I know that sounds so basic and so simple, and yet many times we skip it. And so tonight, with that problem you have, let me ask you a question. Have you thought about fasting and praying about that particular problem? Maybe for one meal. Maybe we do the media fast in January. Maybe for one day, you don't turn the television on. Maybe for one evening, you don't turn the television on. And you spend that time praying to God. Prayer is our lifeline to God. It not only puts us in touch with God, think about this, prayer puts us in a position to experience God's intervention in our situation and with our problem. And so prayer is not going to do you any harm. It puts you in a position to experience the power of God in your life. So prayer is the thing God has devised to help us address the problem. The third thing that God has given us and we need is, is that God will solve our problem when we have a clear vision of the high and exalted person of Jesus Christ. So many times in our problems, our focus is just on the problem. And remember this, whatever you focus on, that's going to get magnified and amplified in your mind and in your heart. If, you, if it's all about the problem, if it's all about the news, if it's all about the whatever, that's going to dominate your thinking. And as a man thinks, so is he. But if it's all about God, and it's all about his goodness, and it's all about his plan, and it's all about trying to figure out, God, why did you allow this into my life? God, what are you up to? God, how's this story going to end? God, what is the purpose of this? God, what are you showing me? What are you teaching me? How can I grow? Well, if a person's asking those questions, their focus is not really on the problem. Their focus is on God, and they're saying, God, what are you up to in my life? And what we, when we do that now, we're looking in the right direction. Because now we're looking to God instead of the problem. I'm saying we need a clear vision 
of the high and exalted person of Jesus Christ. Now look in verse 8 because this is what happened in the Old Testament. Then the Lord said to Moses, So make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, a bronze serpent. We don't know the dimensions or the size of this, but a a pretty good size serpent made out of bronze. And he said, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. And so here's Moses in the wilderness, praying for the people who are being bitten by these snakes. God, do something. Stop this plague. God said, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. See, now God is responding to that prayer. Moses is asking God to do something. And God says, I'm fixing to do something, but it's going to involve you, Moses, and it's going to involve the people. I'm not going to do something apart from you. I'm going to tell you to do something that you can do, and then when you do what you can do and the people do what they can do, I'll do what only I can do. Build a bronze serpent. There goes Moses. He gets some bronze. He heats it up. He builds a serpent, a big snake. Attach it to a pole, Moses. He does. He had to hold it up so the people could see it. And when the people looked at it, They were healed from their sin. Now you say, well, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? This bronze serpent. Let me me read you this. In uh, John chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish. And then John 3, 16 comes after that. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying that that serpent in the wilderness, lifted up on that pole, was an Old Testament picture of himself. The people had been bitten by these poisonous snakes. We have been bitten by the snake of sin when the devil came into the Garden of Eden and in in the body of a serpent, of a snake, and there came sin into the world. Just like those snakes had bitten those people, sin has infected us. Just like those people were dying because of those snake bites, we're dying because of our sin. We're dead in trespasses in sin. Sin is doing the same thing to the human race today that it did to those Jewish people in the wilderness. It is killing us. Not immediately, at least not physically immediately, but it is nonetheless killing us. And so Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that anyone who looked at the serpent would be healed... I now am lifted up on this cross, or I will be lifted up on this cross. And anyone who looks to me will be saved. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, and the next point, hopefully, God will use it to help you greatly with your problem. But before we get to number four, or letter D, I want to make sure you've got letter C. We need a clear vision of the high and exalted person of Jesus Christ. We've got to get our eyes off of the serpents and off of the problem and off of all the mess and get our eyes on Jesus. Look up. Now, letter D. Say, John, how, you know, you say that God has designed a way for us to deal with the bad. How? Here, letter D. Through a willingness to look to Jesus for the solution to your problem. Through a willingness to look to Jesus for the solution to your problem. Did you know The Bible, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is very much a look and live message. Look at Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22, one of the great verses in all of the Old Testament. And here's what God said, look to me and be saved. Say that verse with me. Look to me and be saved. One of the reasons I love that verse, and maybe you've heard this story before, but when the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon was about 10 or 12 or 13 years old, 
he was unsaved, young, young boy, didn't know the Lord yet, but he had a heart for God. He, he, he was interested in spiritual things. He went to church. And so on a particular Sunday morning, he got up to go to a church in London, and it was a terrible snowstorm. And so the, the Baptist church that he would normally have gone to, he couldn't even get to it because of all the snow. And so there was a Methodist church closer by, and he thought, well, I'm not Methodist, but what difference does it make? I, need, I want to go to church today. And so he went to this small Methodist church on a snowy day, and there were just a handful of people there. In fact, the crowd was so small that the preacher didn't even show up for church. And one of the deacons, when it got time for the sermon, went behind the pulpit and said, I'm not the pastor. I'm not a preacher. I'm a, I don't know if he was a deacon or just a layman. in the, I don't even know if he was a deacon, maybe just a layman in the church. He said, but somebody's got to give the sermon today. He said, I don't know anything about preaching. I don't know how to do points, truths, applications, explanations, illustrations, themes. I don't know anything about it. But he said, there's a verse in the Bible that is on my heart today. And that was the verse, Isaiah 45, 22, where God said, look to me and be saved, all you, the ends of the earth. And this lay preacher, this layman, looked out across the auditorium and his eyes landed on young Charles Spurgeon. He had no idea who, no idea who he was. And here's this young teenager at, at, old, at the oldest. And that man said to Spurgeon, he said, young man, you look absolutely miserable. What you need to do is look to Jesus and be saved. Now, how would you like that man to be doing the preaching up here? <laughs> Calling people out like that, you know. You look miserable. You're asleep. What's wrong with you? That's what he said to Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon's testimony is, when that preacher told me to look to Jesus, I looked away to Jesus and I could not stop looking. And as I looked to Jesus and confessed my sins and repented of my sins, asked Christ to save me, trusted Christ to save me, that looking to Jesus changed my life. The most influential Baptist preacher in the history of the world was converted in a Methodist church when the preacher never did even show up because of the snowstorm. And it's interesting. About two or three hours ago at my house, it looked like the bottom was going to fall out tonight and it was going to really be bad weather. And it didn't happen. But at least it looked like that. And I said to myself, well, the crowd tonight's going to be smaller than it would have been. Some, and I just, thought, I just thought this, you know, if it just comes a gully washer and no, but nobody shows up, I had this feeling. If it's the smallest Wednesday night crowd we've ever had in the history of the church tonight, you better listen to this. Tonight, somebody in that crowd is going to be set free from either sin, sickness, suffering, or sorrow. I'm telling you tonight, I felt that very strongly before I left my house, and I feel it right now, and it didn't even rain. We've got, we've got a pretty good group here tonight. But the point is, the solution to our problem is to look to Jesus. Look to me, God said, and be saved. It's the only way that we can be saved is by looking to Jesus. Another verse, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's a tremendous verse. We're to be looking unto Jesus. That word looking literally means looking away from everything else and looking to Jesus. We look away from all of our problems and everything, and we look away and we look to Jesus. Some of you tonight who are here and you're doubting your salvation, let me say to you tonight that if you're truly saved, and you're doubting your salvation, the reason that you're doubting your salvation is because you're not 
looking to Jesus. You're looking to something other than Jesus. You're looking to your salvation experience. You're looking to the prayer you prayed. You're looking back. You're looking in the past. You're looking at yourself. You're asking yourself, well, did I really understand enough to get saved? And so the devil has got your focus off of Jesus and onto that. And you can't have the assurance of salvation without looking to Jesus, without trusting in Jesus. And so we look away from all of that and we look to Jesus and we say, everything in me is inadequate. But everything in Jesus is more than adequate. And so we look to him. We look unto Jesus. Psalm 138.8, for those of you tonight with a problem in your life. Look at the verse. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Now, I quote that verse to myself regularly. When I have a problem, I say, now, God, here's my problem. But here's your promise that you will perfect that in me. The, I think the NIV says the Lord will fulfill his purpose in me. That's good. The other, you know, some might, you could translate, the Lord will complete that which concerns me. These are all great translations. I just like the New King James here. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. When, listen, here's why I like that. When we have a problem, what's the problem? The problem is we've got something in our life that's not perfect, right? It's not right. And we say, God, this thing's not right, but your promise is you will perfect that which concerns me. So, John, that's what I'm hoping God will do for me, that he'll perfect it. When's he going to get around to doing that? Well, look at this verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Notice what Solomon said. He has made everything beautiful in its time. I wish I could say that God's going to solve your problem tonight. Now, he might, and he very, he very well may. I think we'd be surprised in many cases that God's more willing to solve our problems quicker than we think. But sometimes we, he makes us wait a long time. But he makes all things beautiful in its time. Now, underneath, underneath letter C, by the way, you still listen? Say amen. I'm almost finished. But underneath letter C, I think I forgot to just mention these little subpoints. We printed them in your program tonight. But I want you just to see these because as you think about your problem, the first thing that has to happen before God will solve a problem is we have to know what the you have to identify the problem. Now, if you're here tonight and you say, John, my problem is a sin problem. My sin problem has never been dealt with. Well, look at what it says. In him, that is in Jesus, is forgiveness. John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Tonight, if you're not saved, or maybe you are saved, but you've committed some sin and you, the guilt of that, the, your problem now is your guilt. Well, tonight, Jesus can take that guilt away. He can forgive that sin and remove that guilt. I read not too many days ago in Psalm 32, David said, Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. Now, David had committed some bad sins, and yet God forgave him of that. God gave David a second chance, and he restored him, and uh, God does that for us. In him, so you say, John, my problem, uh, God's forgiven my sin, so I'm okay there. My problem tonight is physical sickness. Well, look at this truth. In him, that is in Jesus, there's healing for that sickness. You believe Jesus still heals? Say amen. amen. Exodus 15, 26, God said, for I am the Lord who heals you. Remember this, the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. When God said, I'm the Lord who heals you, that's just Jesus saying the same thing. We read in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We come to the New Testament, and it says that in Christ, all things were created. Well, who created the world, God or Jesus? God is Jesus. 
God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're just one God. Three persons. I can't understand it, but I believe it. But I'm saying to you tonight that in Jesus there's healing for your sickness. You say, when will it come? I don't know. I'll tell you this. There's only two answers to that question. It will either come on earth or it will come in heaven. But the sickness that you're struggling with now, mark this down. Let me pull a number out of the air that I might be safe with. 50 years from now, you won't have that same sickness. If you want to figure out how much longer you're going to have that sickness, I think we would all be happy to live to be 100, right? How many of you, if God said to you, I'm going to let you live to be 100 years old, would take God up on that? Just raise your hand, 100. No, only, no, y'all don't want to live to be 100. Y'all ready to go on, huh? Well, I would say if God let me live to be with a clear mind and a healthy body, I'd rather be, I'd, I'd take 100. So just let's just say 100 is what we're going to get. When you have a problem, take the number 100 and take your age and subtract your age from that problem. So for me, whatever problem I have, I can only have it for 70 more years because I'm 30. And so 100 minus 70 is 30. No, I'm 52. So whatever problem I have, at the longest, I, I mean, I can only have this problem 48 more years. The problem's gone. Because when I'm 100, I die and I go to heaven. So if you have a problem, you say, how long is this problem going to last? Well, at the longest, if you live to be 100, do the math, that's how long it's going to last. I'm saying the problem is not forever. And many times, and I'm going to end by reading an illustration of this tonight, many times God says, you don't have to wait till you're 100. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven. I'm willing and I'm certainly able to solve that problem right here and right now. And one of the reasons that some of our problems are unsolved is because we haven't gone through this process that God has laid out in his word for the problem to be solved. We've not confessed our sins. We've not prayed. We've not gotten a clear vision of the risen and exalted Jesus. And we've not been willing to go to him and ask him to solve that problem, to heal that illness, to lift that depression, to mend that broken heart. We've not done it. And as a result, we still have the problem. And how about the next one? You say, John, my problem's not physical. My problem's emotional. I'm sad. I'm sorrowful. I'm down. I'm low. We all get that way sometimes. We all have low days. It's just part of the human race. I was watching a little video of R.T. Kendall a few days ago. Every, if you want a blessing, every day he does a one-minute video tweet. He started this in March of 2020 when the pandemic started because a man named John Jay, who's the Billy Graham of England, started doing that. And he said to Dr. Kendall, RT, you ought to do a one-minute tweet every day to encourage people during the pandemic. And I started watching on day one, and I haven't missed a single day. And a few days ago, Dr. Kendall did a, did a uh, tweet, a video, and here was his question, are you ever low? And he started talking about how on that particular day, he had woken up low. He's talking about depressed, down. And he said, I prayed about it. I talked to my wife about it. And I'm just having a low day. Well, it did me good. Misery loves company. I don't even think I was low that day. But it's good to know that, that even people farther along get low sometimes. And so we have to remember when we're like that, that there's comfort in Jesus. There's comfort in him. Psalm 23, 4, David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And then he said, Your rod and your staff, 
They comfort me. God is the God of all comfort. The rod, the shepherd would use that to beat off the animals that were attacking the sheep. And if, an animal, if one of the sheep fell, the shepherd would take that staff with a hook on the end and he would invert and turn that staff over and he would take that hook and he would pick up his fallen sheep and put that sheep back on its feet again. That's what God does for us when we get low, when we get down. He lifts us up. In him is emotional healing. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Tonight you came sad. You could leave glad. You came down, you could leave up. That may not happen that quickly, but it may. You came sick. It just could be that in the next three to four minutes, God heals you of your sickness. I'm reading through a devotional book this year uh, by Max Licato entitled, You Can Count on God. And it's one of the most, uh, it's just, it's a good book. It's one of the most uh, insightful devotionals I've ever read. And a few days ago on August the 30th, he did a devotional called Get Up and Walk. And his scripture that day was Jeremiah 17, 14, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. And I never had even noticed that verse. And I looked it up in my Bible. I never had noticed it, but it's a tremendous verse. Here's his devotional. Barbara Snyder had not walked in seven years because of multiple sclerosis. She was nearly blind. She was confined confined to a hospital bed in her home and given six months to live. One day as she was listening to some prayers written for her, Barbara heard a man's voice behind her saying, My child, get up and walk. There was no man in the room. She told one of her friends, God just told me to get up and walk, run and get my family. They came. What happened next was described by one of her physicians, Dr. Thomas Marshall. She literally jumped out of bed. Her vision was back, and she could move her feet and hands freely. Christ, Lakato said, did the work. He footnotes that source, by the way. Christ did the work. Christ performed the miracle. Christ intervened. But even so, Barbara had to believe. She had to get up and walk. And then he said, so do you, and so do I. Now, in the wilderness, they're bitten by those snakes they're dying. God told Moses to build a, uh, what, I, what we talked about, the serpent, put it on a pole and lift it up. And if anybody looked at it, that they, would be, that they would be healed. And so I want to close tonight by reading this one verse, verse 8. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. God told Moses what to do. Moses did it. Moses lifted up that bronze serpent. But in order for anyone to be healed, they had to look up at it. And by looking up at that, it was symbolic. It was representative. It was prophetic of us looking up to the risen, exalted Jesus and say, Lord, I believe that in you. There's forgiveness for my sin. There's healing for my sickness. There's help for my suffering. 
And there's gladness for my sadness. But we have to be willing to look up. Now, I wonder tonight, at the beginning, I said, how many of you have a problem? Man, we all said, yeah. Most of us said, I've got a problem. How many of you tonight would be willing with that problem to look to Jesus by faith and say, Jesus, I'm asking you in your own time and in your own way to heal this illness, to restore this relationship, to solve this problem, to forgive this sin. Now, he'll answer that one immediately. Or if you've never been saved, to be saved. Now, with our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight, I want to end it differently. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Chris is going to play something quietly in the background. That problem that you have, that you wish God would solve and that he would lift off of you, I'm going to ask you to do something tonight that's going to require faith. Just like those children of Israel in the wilderness, it took faith to look up to that bronze serpent. And it's going to take faith to do what I'm going to ask you to do tonight. But if you want God to intervene supernaturally in your situation while heads are bowed and eyes are closed as an expression of of your dependence on God and an expression of your faith in God. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I'm not going to ask you to come forward and give a speech. I'm not going to embarrass you. But just stand up. And I want to have a prayer over you and then we'll be dismissed. We're going to take 30 more seconds tonight. And I'm going to give everybody an opportunity to stand up. And to look to Jesus. Without this part, all we've done is heard a sermon. Had those people never looked at the bronze serpent, the work would have been done. The healing would have been provided. But they would have died in that wilderness because they would not have looked. Look and live. God said, look to me and be saved. What's the implication? If you don't look, you won't be saved. If you don't ask, you won't receive. If you don't seek, you won't find. And if you don't knock, that door won't be open to you. Now tonight, in your own words, say, Jesus, this is my problem. Tell him what it is. Lord, I'm asking you to solve it. To intervene to work in my life and I'm trusting you whether it's immediately maybe I just got healed or whether it's progressive I'm trusting you to solve this problem and to meet this need now some of you stood tonight because your problem is a sin problem your problem is you don't know that you, whether or not you're saved and that's the worst problem But you came to the house of God tonight. You came to the one place in town that can tell you how to have that problem solved. And that is by repenting of your sins and asking Christ to save you. And if you have never done that right now, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive my sins. Come into my heart. Make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. In your name I pray. And all the people said, amen and amen.